You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. It defines marriage um, and, 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 and becomes one of these foundation passages for us as we talk about marriage. And yet, have you ever noticed is the first word in that verse? Crucial little word. Um, we regularly quote this scripture passage and forget that it, it begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. Um, as the saying goes, whenever you come across a therefore, you have to stop and ask, what's it there for? Right? He's building off something. There's a foundation under this. And so we're so familiar with this little verse. Um, do we know the context? Do you know why he said this? Um, this morning, as we work our way through Genesis chapter 2, um, we're going to spend some time looking at what the therefore is there for. And what is this foundation? What is the, the logical and the theological basis for this passage on marriage, for the, for the reality of marriage? And, uh, and so we're going to look at, at Genesis chapter 2, as I said. Look with me, verse, uh, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took, a rib, uh, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. Would you pray with me? Father, you know my heart, my weakness. Lord, I'm not sufficient for these things. In you, oh Lord, do we take refuge. Let's never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver us. Incline your ear to us. Rescue us speedily. Be a rock of refuge for us, a strong fortress to save us. For you are a rock in our fortress. For your namesake, Lord, you lead us and guide us. Father, I pray now, would you lead us and guide us for your namesake? God, would you humble us before your word? Would you use this um, broken and weak servant to proclaim your truth, and God, that your word would be at work. Lord, soften our hearts. You know we are uh, a people of often hard hearts, and 
dull ears, God, would you open our ears, soften our hearts? Would you speak to us, encourage us, strengthen us this morning? Um, God, if there's anything I have prepared that is not true to your word, let those words fall to the ground. Let your truth be spoken. Let your word go forth. And we ask in Jesus' name. As we look at this passage, um, the first thing we see in in looking at um, Genesis 2 um, is man's problem. Man's problem. There there is a problem here. It's hard to appreciate how shocking these words really are in verse 18. It says that the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone. It's not good. Um, Remember where we've been up to this point? All through the first six days, the Lord has said, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. The end of the seventh day, or end of the sixth day, sorry, he steps back and he looks at all that he had made and says, behold, it was all very good. Here, chapter 2. Now, context, Moses has is, is finished the six days of creation. Now he's kind of going back and revisiting day six and telling it in, in more detail. And there, in the middle of day six, he comes to this statement, it's not good. Something is wrong. There's a problem in creation. Specifically, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, all the wives chuckle a little bit. Um, All the husbands who have ever been left at home for the weekend with the kids um, give a a bleary-eyed nod. Uh, It is not good for man to be alone. That's true. It's true. Uh, I love my wife more than anything else in this world. She is absolutely irreplaceable. But if she were to die suddenly, I would need to be married again within the month. I mean, kids are going to starve. The house is going to fall apart, right? Um, I need help. However, as we look at this passage, we do need to be a little more precise. Um, Yes, it is the masculine word there, uh, man, and yet it's not specifically male. Um, This is the word that God has used all the way along to speak of mankind. And so the Bible unabashedly uses masculine terms to refer to the whole human race, and, and yet, um, here, God is not making a statement about males. He's talking about humanity, right? It is not good for a human to be alone. It's not good for one of mankind to be alone. Now, what makes it not good? What, what is it not good for? What is it supposed to accomplish that it's then not accomplishing, right? That's important, um, I know there are, are uh, where, my, where my introverts at, there's some of you who are like, alone is just fine, thank you very much. Uh, that's the way I like it. Um, the Lord disagrees. The Lord disagrees. It's not good for us to be alone. To see that, to answer this question, not, not good for what, we have to go back to, to chapter one. What's the purpose of creation? Why did God make mankind? And we see that back in uh, verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. God says, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, and over all the earth of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created mankind as this shining forth of his image, his representative on the earth to show who he is to to rule as his ambassador there. Mankind is to be this 
image of God, a physical representation of the spiritual God on earth. But God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is essentially and and internally relational. And so how can we, as a solo person, fully represent who God is? Now, it's true. The context going forward is definitely that of marriage. It is man and woman. Um, But the implication here in verse 18, let's just not get ahead of ourselves, it's much broader than that. It isn't specific to marriage yet. This is just a general truth that mankind does not fully display the image and the glory of God except when they are in relationship. In the context of Community, together we bear the image of God. We need community. It's interesting as we look at marriage and male and female relationships, um, Jesus, the most fully human person who ever lived, right? He is the pure and undefiled image of God. He was never married. I don't care what your History Channel special or Dan Brown novel says, he was never married. And again, he was the most fully human person that ever lived. As a single person, it might be easy to read this. It's not good for man to be alone. And you feel a little helpless, a little discouraged. And why am I alone still, God? What are you doing? And I don't want to minimize the pain of that and the frustration of that and that that place of waiting on the Lord. Um, That's hard. But in In this passage here, um, we don't want to go too far. We don't want to imply that not being married um, makes you somehow subhuman, right? That's, That's not what's going on here. Marriage is not an essential part of what it means to be human. It's, it's significant, it's sacred, it's it's beautiful, but it but it's not at the core of our humanity. In providing Adam and Eve. Uh, sorry, providing Adam with Eve. Um, God wasn't just giving Adam a wife. Um, he's giving provision for the whole human race. He's beginning that fruitful and multiply. He's creating community. That's our, our first need. Um, even married couples um, need more than marriage. Married couples are not, it's not good for a married couple to have no other network and community. We most fully display the image of God as we connect with other people, as we share life together. And so, to the single and the married, do we have those intimate relationships? Do you, do you value the, the connection of other people in your life? Are we open and, and transparent in that? And that's universally true for us as humans, but that's pointedly true for us as Christians. This is so core to what it means to be the church. When we're saved, we become part of this new creation, this new humanity rescued by God and and, and gathered together as this display of who Christ is. We're the body of Christ. Listen to John, uh, sorry, 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So no one's ever seen God, but 
solution, if we as the church love one another, God's love shows up in us. We display the love and the, and the character and the glory of God, and we as the church become the body of Christ, the image of, of who God is in our relationships, in, in true, meaningful community. That's at the core of what the church is. How are we doing at that? How are we doing at that? I want to take a minute and, and just give you a second to ask this question. Why am I here right now? Why did I come to church today? It was not a nice morning on the roads. I don't know if you found that. It would have been easier to stay home. Maybe a bunch of you did and you're watching online. What's the value of church? What's the value of gathering together physically? And, and I want you to try to get past um, thinking about what the right answer should be and getting to what the true answer is. What's in my heart? And that's often harder to get to than we'd like to admit. But go ahead, take a second. Why are you here today? So why is it? Did you come to be entertained? Did you come to be served? Did you come to, uh, out of habit or, or tradition? Did you come because your spouse dragged you along? Or did you come to be part of the body, part of the fellowship, to engage with, with worship and the word of God together as a community? How about small groups? I know it can be tough. Maybe you've never been in a group like that before. Um, I know some of the groups got shuffled a little bit, so the, the dynamics change a little bit. It's scary. It's scary to invest in a group of people. It's scary to, to open yourself up and be vulnerable and, and share about what's going on in your heart and your life. It feels risky. Wow. But that's how we put God on display. That's why small groups are so essential to us being the church, that we get beyond a, you know, a Sunday morning hug, how are you, that's fantastic, but we want to go deeper. We want to go to, how are you really doing? What are the sins you're wrestling with? How can I pray for you? How can I serve you that we're actually living Christian life together? That's man's problem in this text. It's not good for man to be alone. And that brings us then to God's provision. Point two, God's provision. Our problem is that it's, it's not good for us to be alone and, and God's provision is verses 19 to 23. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Pay attention to that phrase. That shows up a few times. That's significant. I will make a helper fit for him. First thing we see is this strange interlude then. Um, this account of, of Adam naming all the animals. What's that doing there? Why does he throw that in the middle? I'll make him a helper. Hey, go over here where there's no helper. Um, well, it's, it's on purpose. It's on purpose. Uh, and we'll get there. Um, I want to pause first. I don't want to spend long here, but this is one of those places. Um, people have asked me. I'm looking forward to getting to that because I have a question. Um, it, is it possible that these are 24-hour days if Adam named all of the animals in one day? 
And that's the place where people say the Bible can't be true. The Bible can't be speaking literally here because that's impossible. And so I just want to answer that very quickly and briefly and without all the detail you might like. Um, If you just stop and take into account the livestock, the birds, the beasts of the field, that's what... That's what Adam named on that day. That's what's listed here. So that rolls out the, the fish and the creeping things and the, and the insects. That, that brings the number down a long way. On top of that, uh, he also wasn't necessarily naming every species, right? You're looking at the book of Genesis. Um, we're talking about kinds of animals. Um, if you remember your, your high school biology, that's, that's, uh, that's maybe more uh, genus rather than species. And so he's not naming chihuahua, pit bull, wolf, coyote. He's naming dog canine family, whatever that is, horse, cow, parrot. I don't know how birds work. Um, This brings the number down significantly, right? We might be talking about 2,500 different unique kinds at this point. And if he's moving along, maybe four hours of work, maybe five, that's totally doable. And and so I say that just to, to reiterate, as we come across these weird things that make us ask questions and wonder, is that possible? Um, Dig in. Ask questions of God's word. It, it, can, it can hold up. There are answers to these questions if, if we're willing to actually, uh, in good faith, look for them. Uh, scripture can be trusted on this. Um, and so I think that problem evaporates fairly quickly if we just stop to ask the question. Um, but let's get back to the point of this text. It's not good for Adam to be alone. And then God parades all of these animals before him. And, uh, and there are a couple of things going on here. Um, first, it shows that Adam has authority over this newly created world. This is establishing him in his place of having dominion over the animals. To name them was to show his authority over them. Um, it shows his, his place in the garden. Secondly, um, just building some anticipation. He's proving his point to Adam that that there are no other suitable partners for him. Nothing else, no other creature would suffice. There is no other helper fit for him. Just imagine what's going on in Adam's heart here. Animal after animal comes to him. He gives it a name, and, and then it's sent away, and it goes back to its herd or its flock or its pack or its brood. They, they, they all have others like them, and Adam's looking around. There's nothing here that fits with me. I'm alone. Uh, He's building this anticipation. He's building up this this feeling in Adam's heart. The Lord wants Adam to feel this. The end of verse 20, then, is is kind of the bookend to this little interlude. Um, But for Adam, there was not found, again, a helper fit for him. And so now we move from the, the negative, there is no one, into the positive the lack of a helper, to God's provision of the perfect helper. Um, God does a little surgery, puts Adam to sleep, uh, removes a rib from his side, uh, closes the place back up, and then out of that rib, God makes the woman, the first woman, the first creature that Adam had ever seen that was like him. End of verse 22 uh, is like a father at a wedding. The Lord brings Eve to Adam. The Lord, uh, as a father, presents the bride to the husband, to the, to the groom. And then verse 23 in your Bibles, you should see a shift in the text. There's these block 
verses here um, set off. That's because it's a, a different genre all of a sudden. Um, the, the writing style changes. Turns out, all of a sudden, Adam is a hopeless romantic. Uh, he is starry-eyed, over the top, and he breaks out into song. No doubt overwhelmed with joy, seeing one like him, uh, enchanted by her beauty, and, and the world's first song is a love song from a husband to his wife on their wedding day. It's beautiful. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He looked at all of the animals of the field, the forest, the plain. None of them was suitable. None of them was a fit companion. But this at last, this one's like him. This is the perfect match. And that really brings us back to the heart of it. This, this phrase the Lord has thrown in twice now, she is a helper fit for him. That's God setting the terms. This is God's definition in, in seed form of the relationship between man and woman. It's right there. Simple as that little phrase is, that gives us an incredible foundation, some, some basic parameters from God of what it means to be male and female. How we're to, to interact and, and to relate, uh, specifically what it means to be husband and wife. To begin with, and it's sad that we even have to go this basic, but in our culture, we do. The first thing it tells us is that there are men and there are women. I know that's shocking and incredibly offensive, um, but there it is. These verses show there is male. There is female. They are absolutely different. Maleness and femaleness, masculinity, femininity, they, they are not social constructs. They're created by God. There are two sexes, and that means two genders. The Bible doesn't play word games here. They were both created by God, and they were created distinct. Wow. There are men, and there are women. And there are essential differences between men and women, and that was built in by God's intentional design. And it's not flexible. We don't get to choose and change. There are men, and there are women. Secondly, men marry women. This pairing together in the marital relationship, it's not up for redefinition. A helper fit for him, or as other translations say, a helper that is suitable for him, or the CSB goes with a helper corresponding to him. I think that is helpful, kind of getting a little more to the nuance. Um, the Hebrew here, uh, it has the sense of an opposite, he needs a helper that is opposite him, that is different from him. But not in a negative way, rather in a, in a positive way. A helper who is what he lacks. A helper who is complementary opposites. They, they fit together. She is to be a helper uh, who is the, the peanut butter to his jelly, the macaroni to his cheese. Uh, I, I don't want to be crass, but the, the physical dynamics of man and woman make this very clear, and that's part of God's design. Specifically, this closest relationship, the one flesh relationship of the marriage relationship, is created by God as one man, one woman. We are communal beings, and, and, and that relationship is sacred. 
clearly, exclusively reserved, one man, one woman. And so there's no room for homosexuality in God's design. That runs all the way through Scripture. The Bible's not unclear about that. Um, Homosexuality runs absolutely contrary to God's design. Now, let's pause there. The question arises, both with regards to, to gender and to, to homosexuality. Um, if, if homosexuality is wrong, if transgenderism is wrong, why was I born this way? And why do I have these feelings in my heart? Why does it feel so right? Why would God put that in me if it's so terribly wrong? And the answer is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's sin. It's sin. This account that we're reading is the world before sin. This is is God's world as he intended it to be. This is how he created it. Um, This is what it was when he declared, this is all very good. But once sin enters the world, once humanity declared its independence from God, its rebellion against him, sin corrupted everything. And it twists even the desires of the human heart. It disfigures and and perverts what God has made right down to the core. And so we're not born as perfect. Our hearts do not tell us the truth. They love things that they should not. Our, Our minds, our feelings can't be trusted. That's not the standard of what's right and good and true. Some are born with an innate desire and leaning toward murder and violence. Doesn't make it a good thing just because it's there in my heart. That doesn't justify it. We're born with brokenness. We're born with corruption. Some are born with diseases physically. Others are born with with physical or mental disorders. Sin corrupts us right from the womb. And so, yes, I understand. Maybe from someone's earliest memories, they had thoughts and feelings about their body or about their sexuality and, and thoughts and feelings that don't match God's design. And that's incredibly powerful very formative in in who they are and how they think. And and those aren't easy things to just kind of cast aside, pretend like it doesn't exist, but that doesn't mean it's good or that they should be encouraged or followed or acted on. The problem, the, the pain that is there is not a problem coming from God's design. It's a problem that comes from sin and our corruption the brokenness that's in our hearts. And church, let's be careful here. We do absolutely need to stand firm on God's design. We need to be clear about what is sin and the consequences of sin, which if not repented and turned away from is hell. It's not loving to encourage someone or to make excuses for someone's sinfulness, uh, making a, a paving the path for them as they walk in disobedience to the Lord toward hell. That's not love. At the same time, can you really say you don't understand the power of sin? Do you not know exactly what it means to have disordered desires in your heart? to have longings in our hearts that are, that are the opposite of God's design and his laws? Were you not also born in sin, corrupted with evil? 
Maybe not that specific corruption, but corruption nonetheless. Bound for hell nonetheless. And while we must stand firm on God's truth and never waver on what is right and wrong, and we will absolutely be made uh, unpopular in today's culture by that, we will be attacked and called names for that, and yet it will be absolutely hypocritical for us to pretend like we don't understand. Like we ourselves were not pulled out of the same pit of despair and destruction. Our primary message, right, the main thing we want to communicate should never be the sinfulness of sin, but the kindness and the grace of God toward those who will repent. That Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And that forgiveness is offered to all who come to him in repentance. Forgiveness for the most wicked of sinners like me. So there are men and there are women. Marriage and sex is for one man and one woman. Now let's get further into the the nuance here, maybe a little bit closer to home. Men and women were created for complementary roles. Now that's complementary, not with an I, um, but with an E. Our roles are not um, to say nice things to each other, to to complement each other. Um, They're not free like the complementary peanuts on the flight. Um, but complementary with an E. The Oxford Dictionary actually has a fantastic definition here. Uh, It says, combining in such a way as to enhance or emphasize the qualities of each other or another. So think about that. Combining in such a way, they complement each other to enhance or to emphasize the qualities of each other. We have different roles. Roles that are perfectly designed that that we might enhance and and emphasize the good in one another. We are different. We're different on purpose. It's beautiful. I think our, our culture has such a hard time with this right now, and it goes across the scape. I mean, races are different. Genders are different. And and that's beautiful. And there's a reason we don't watch black and white TV anymore. Because there's not much variety. There's not much difference. Heaven will be filled with people from every tribe and language and people and tongue, and it will be glorious as God's creative design is put on display. At some point we have to stop and ask as we look at this passage, as we see these differences, why did God create this way? Why did God do what he did? Why pull the rib, all this theatrics and fanfare, make the woman out of, like, this is so complicated, right? Again, everything else he just spoke and it was. He spoke and it was. He spoke and it was. Now, man, he gathers and creates and he forms the man out of the dust. He breathes life into him. And then the woman, he takes one step further. He takes the rib from the man. Why all of this? Why not create man and woman first at the same time, like he did every other species, And then why not create them the same way as he did the others? Why is Adam created from the dust, Eve from Adam's rib? If if God intended for men and women to be identical and to have these interchangeable roles, then the whole creation account here just doesn't make a lot of sense. But that wasn't God's design. God's design, which he states clearly here, is that Eve would be a helper for Adam. And he weaves that truth all the way through this story in the way that he creates them. Adam is created first and then Eve. And in that, 
Actually, the, the creation mandate, the, the rules of the garden were given first to Adam before Eve was even created. He was given that place of responsibility. And Eve was not created from the earth like Adam was. Rather, she was created out of his rib, out of his side. Matthew Henry famously put it this way. The woman was not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled by, uh, upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. God is saying something. Adam was to have this place of of leader, protector, provider, and, and Eve was to be his helper. As many have pointed out, helper here is not a demeaning term. It should not be belittling. It shouldn't be a lesser thing. It doesn't mean slave. It doesn't mean lesser value. In, in fact, the word there is ezer, and, and it's most often used through Scripture of God. Right? An obvious example, Exodus 18.4, um, Moses is naming his children. And the name of the other, his second son, is Eliezer. For he said, the God of my fathers was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. El, God, as their helper. God is my helper. It's not demeaning to be called a helper. It doesn't belittle God. Men and women have these, these different roles. John Piper um, gives, I think, a helpful, helpful definition of these roles. He says, masculinity is to have a benevolent responsibility to lead, provide, and protect. A benevolent responsibility to lead, provide, and protect. Femininity, he says, Uh, is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership in the man. To affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership. So, I get it. This is tough. This cuts cross-grain to our culture, absolutely. Uh, The idea of submission has been badly abused. The men of the past have, have absolutely been domineering and abusive. Um, we are not talking about authoritarianism. That is a corruption. That's not God's design. And though submission is scary and has often been made a, a bad word, and it is, it is an act of service, it is an act of, of humility, it certainly, again, is not demeaning. At least it doesn't have to be. Um, how can we be sure of that? Well, again, because there's this same structure and headship in the Trinity, in God. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, But I want you to understand, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. A couple things here. First, we all submit, right? There's nobody who doesn't submit. Husbands, Men, you, you submit to God. You submit to Christ. He is our authority. And then notice, just as the woman is to submit to her husband, uh, in the same way, Christ submits to the Father. Christ is absolutely equal to God, right? If you don't believe that, you can't be part of our church. That's part of our core doctrine. Um, that's essential. Christ is absolutely equal to the Father, and yet he humbly submits himself to the Father. Look back again to, to Genesis 1.27. Men and women are, are created together in the image of God, right? 
He created the man, so he created man, that's mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So they're created together in the image of God, each with all of the the dignity and the honor and the sanctity that, that comes from that. Equal in value and honor, just not identical in roles, responsibilities. And take note, again, this is all before the fall. This is before sin. Good, healthy, loving complementarianism is not a result of the fall. It's not a a corruption. It's well established by God in the Garden of Eden, and God says this is good. Now, like so many of God's gifts, yes, it can easily be twisted and distorted by sin. We're in danger of perverting it, but in itself, it's, it's good and beautiful and right. God is looking at this, this relational dynamic between men and women and said, this is good. So what does that mean for us today? How do our marriages reflect this? Husbands, are you leading in your home? Do you take that responsibility to provide, to protect, to care for, to lead? Now, there are all kinds of weird scenarios. We live in a broken world. The husband who falls and breaks his back and whose wife is supporting him, he's not in sin. That's just dealing with the reality. But that's our charge, to be providing, protecting, caring for um, one of the hardest ways and one of the essential ways that we are called to do that uh, is leading the home spiritually. That's your job, men. That's your role given by God to set the direction spiritually. And, and look, in, in all of this, we are, we are so prone to either be domineering and abusive or to be lazy and passive. Neither of those is okay. Both of those are sinful aberrations of what God has created. To lead your wife and your family uh, in, in a loving, self-sacrificing way. Be the one to say, I know there's a lot going on. I know there are all kinds of things pulling for our time, but we're going to church. We're going to make that a priority, that gathering together with the body. It's the husband who steps up and says, yeah, we're going. Or I know the roads are a little mucky today. Look, you guys are here. Um, Let's go. We're brave. Be the one after supper. Pick up your Bible or a devotional book. Just read a chapter. Ask a couple simple questions. Pray for your family. Don't don't neglect the the spiritual leadership of your family. Step into that. It's not a prideful thing for you to take that leadership. At least it shouldn't be. You aren't leading because you're better or, or smarter. You aren't leading because you're more godly. You're leading because God has given you that role, that responsibility. So stand up. Stand up, start doing the things that you know you should do. If you need some direction, there's some helpful resources back at our library table. Come chat with me. I would love to hook you up with some good tools. We can talk about it a little bit. Um, It doesn't have to be fancy. It will never be smooth every time. That's when water's spilled and kids have to pee and everything goes crazy. That's life. Lean into it. Lean into it. And I get it. Some of us uh, struggle with that. That's hard. It's a scary thing. Um, I have a master's degree in theology. I'm uncomfortable some days. Satan's attack. I don't want to open my Bible and read to my family. It's hard. 
It's hard for me. It's hard for all of us. Maybe your wife seems more spiritual than you. She knows the Bible better. How can I lead when she's actually out ahead of me? You have a gift, my friend. She's your helper. Good news. You can still lead and lean on her. That's fantastic. A great example happened last night. I, knowing I was preparing this message, thinking I can't drop the ball on family devotions this week, can I? Um, it's a good little nudge for me. And uh, we read through our uh, catechism that we're working through. And uh, I thought, oh, here's a great hymn for us to sing. And, and we started singing the hymn. And I realized I don't know the tune to this hymn. I've been singing it wrong all by myself, as things tend to happen. And my wife is singing a different tune than I am. Now, I chose the song. I said, hey, we're going to sing a hymn together, family. Uh, And then I kind of mumbled and got a little quieter, and my wife helped lead along. That's partnership. That's a helper that I needed. It's great. And and that is going to look different in different ways, but lean into that. Don't be intimidated by your wife. Let her be your helper. If she has the biblical answer, great. Praise the Lord. Now, wives, are you submitting to and supporting your husband? Have you embraced that role as his helper in life? That's tough. That's tough. But I have my visions and passions and goals. That's that's great, and I don't say you have to throw all that away, but your primary role is his helper. Doesn't mean you need to be a doormat. He needs your wisdom. Sometimes he needs you to call him out. He needs you to question him, to push back. But he also needs your undying respect and support desperately. We fear rejection. We fear looking foolish. We fear that you know more than us, that you're more spiritual than us. Sometimes that's absolutely the case. Wives, you, you have the power to make or break your husband. Look at uh, Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. An excellent wife. A wife who who supports and and respects her husband, who who, who doesn't talk him down either to his face or behind his back, who is encouraging, who is receptive and responsive to his leadership. She will be a crown on his head. You will make him into a king. Over time, he's going to grow. He's going to grow in, in confidence and strength. He'll, he'll lead. He'll become the man that you desire him to be as you support him and cheer him on and encourage him. But if you bring shame on him, if you undercut him, if you sow seeds of, of doubt and, and discouragement and distrust, if every time he falters and, and stutters, you jump in and grab that leadership because you're not satisfied with where he's going, You have power to destroy him like no one else. You'll crush him. You'll be like rottenness in his bones. You will hollow him out. You'll destroy him from the inside out. He'll be a shell of a man, no strength, no confidence. Wife, you have a great power uh, in the life of your husband. Lean into that freeing disposition of affirming and receiving and nurturing strength and and leadership in your husband. And that will be a blessing. That will be a blessing to you and to him. This is God's good provision. Every 
every bit as good as the, the best gifts of the Garden of Eden is, is God's provision of these complementary roles, husband and wife. This is what leads us then to um, that repeated therefore. Because it's not good for man to be alone, and because God has provided this beautiful complementary roles in relationships, therefore, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We saw man's problem. Not good for man to be alone. We see God's provision in uh, a helper suitable for him. Here we see a gospel promise. A gospel promise. We'll, we'll get there. Trust me. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Because of our need for intimacy, because of God's provision of marriage, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. Those old family ties are gone. A new family is created. A new relationship is started. Matthew 19, Jesus quotes these verses. Um, The Pharisees are are questioning Jesus. They're pressing him about what what does God think about divorce? Um, It it seems in Israel in that day, there was basically a no-fault divorce clause. A man could divorce his wife for any reason, or at least they were arguing for that. And, and Jesus answers that question, saying, no, God does not approve of divorce. Matthew 19, verse 4. He says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sound familiar? So, there are no longer two, but one flesh. What Therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. He quotes this verse, and then he says, no, marriage is to be permanent. It's one flesh. It's a binding together that that cannot be broken. You're to cling to one another. This is not a partnership. It's not a business deal. This is absolutely unique. It is a physical and spiritual union of two people that, that can't just be undone. Do you see your marriage that way? Have you fully and completely given yourselves over, melted yourself into this relationship? I hear more and more of Christian couples who have separate bank accounts, separate budgets, separate lives, different friend groups. Our world says, hey, don't don't lose yourself in that relationship. You need to keep your own identity. You need to keep your distinct set of of kind of purpose and self-determination. You know what else I hear a lot more of Christian couples doing? Divorcing. Pulling selfishly between one another. Both trying to serve their own interests rather than serve one another, fighting between them uh, as if the other spouse is their enemy. How can that be? If you're one flesh, you're united together. They can't possibly be your enemy. Together, you should be fighting for what's best for you together. 
There might be sin in that relationship that causes division and and pain, but it's not husband against the wife's sin or wife against the husband of sin. It is husband and wife together against the sin that would seek to drive us apart. The two shall become one. And then Moses writes, they were both naked and not ashamed. Not an insignificant detail. That's a beautiful statement. They're naked. They're uncovered before one another. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is withheld. And in that relationship of fully giving themselves to one another, there's no shame. No fear that one would mock or laugh or criticize the other in any way. That one would condemn. That there would be any sense of competition between the two or abuse of the other. There's no shame. There's no fear. Fully open, fully transparent, united because of this one flesh relationship that they share. They had perfect relational security, complete trust. It's beautiful. That's what marriage should be. That's what these complementary relationships should, should look like when everything's firing in all cylinders. Marriage is one of the most beautiful gifts of God. Again, as we work through Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and and we see God's marvelous provision all throughout the garden. Remember uh, a few weeks ago looking at the the, the food and the beauty and everything that's provided and the river flowing through the garden and, and God puts him there. He's provided so richly. This gift tops them all. Marriage is one of the most beautiful gifts from God. And yet even this best of all gifts is itself actually a promise. This is what makes marriage so sacred. Why is it that that men and women ought to relate a a certain way? And and why should it matter uh, if we want to do it differently, right? If we want to just switch roles, who cares? Well, Ephesians 5, Paul unlocks um, what he calls the mystery of of marriage. Um, Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. We won't be long. Ephesians 5, um, verses 31 and 32, Paul writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery. Now, um, there is a mystery to marriage. There's a a deeper meaning in all of it, and and when Paul uses the word mystery, he's not talking about something we cannot comprehend. He's not talking about something that's out past our ability to know. Um, He's talking about something that was once concealed and is now revealed. Okay, it used to be hidden and unclear, and now it is made clear. God had built into marriage a meaning that, that wasn't obvious from the beginning. But now in Christ, uh, it's clear. It's come to light. And the mystery of marriage is that it refers to Christ and the church. It always has. It was pointing forward to this amazing relationship that the church has with Christ. That's why these roles matter so much. That's why they're not arbitrarily reversible, because the role of Christ in the church isn't arbitrarily reversible. That's why divorce is so serious, because it says something. It says a lie about Christ in the church. 
That's why trust and security and joy in marriage ought to be so rich and full and meaningful. Because it's all pointing forward to Christ and His church. Paul explains this in in detail, just going back, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting at uh, verse 22. He says this to the wives, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as, or just as, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Then he turns to the husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that she might be Uh, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Gentlemen, um, you're not Jesus, right? You are not your wife's savior, but you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Jesus had authority over the church, has authority over his church, and yet he used that authority in the ultimate act of of self-sacrificing love. He laid down himself for her. Love your wives that way. Wives, I think that would be a, a man worth submitting to. That would make that role a little easier, wouldn't it? Men, rejoice in your wives as Christ rejoices in his church, cherishes his church. Wives, your husband is not perfect. He is far from perfect. He does not love you like Christ loves the church. I know my wife's husband doesn't, not perfectly. Your command to submit is not contingent on how well he leads. Absolutely, at some point, if there's sin involved, if there's um, abuse involved, there's, there's conversations there, and we don't live in a perfect world, but On the whole, your call to submit to him does not depend on his perfect leadership, or this would never happen. But your call to submit to your husband as Christ submits to the church, to love and and respect, to humbly support him, follow him. Marriage uh, is this beautiful picture of Christ in the church, this living, breathing metaphor, this real-life picture of the gospel, that Jesus loves his church, that he gave up his life for her, that he uh, is leading her and sanctifying her, rejoicing in her, that he will never abandon her, that between them there's to be no shame as her sin is washed away and, and, and she's covered in the righteousness of Christ, and that the church loves her Lord, that she submits to him in all things, that she follows his lead, that she's absolutely body, heart, and soul faithful to him, eagerly receiving his provision and his protection and his sanctification. Again, marriage doesn't portray all of those things perfectly or completely, but that's what it's pointing forward to. That's why it matters. From the very creation of humanity, marriage was a promise pointing forward to the gospel. Today, on the other side of the cross, marriage is a proclamation pointing back to the gospel. What an opportunity we have. As our world moves further and further away from marriage, the more marriage is is cheapened and twisted and, and cast aside, 
What an opportunity we have as our marriages reflect that truth. We stand out. What a a stark reality it would be as Christian marriages become the only marriages that look like this and they shine bright as stars in a corrupt generation. Our marriages matter. They matter deeply. So I want to take us, I want to take a few minutes and, uh, and spend some time praying together. I mean, keep your, keep your Bible open to, to Ephesians 5. Um, slide in together with another couple or two. If you're, if you're here by yourself, just join in with another uh, couple of couples and, and uh, let's take some time to pray. If you're not comfortable doing that, that's okay. Just sit where you are. You can, you can pray there uh, on your own. That's fine. Uh, but I would encourage you to join in if you're willing to do that. And, uh, and let's pray first. Um, husbands, I want you to, I want you to pray for the wives. Um, see here, um, coming out of Ephesians 5, 22, 24, thank the Lord for your wives. Pray for grace for them as they seek to honor and submit to their <clears throat> less than perfect husbands. Pray for wisdom and how to build up and encourage their husbands. So let's, let's take a few minutes there, um, gather together with a, a couple of couples, and uh, let's, uh, let's pray, husbands, pray for your wives, for the wives in our church.